from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. When the pandemic shut down the global economy in March of 2020, crude oil demand collapsed quickly. There was a moment in April when prices went negative. The price settled at, get this, negative $37 per barrel, which is down 305%, meaning people would pay you today to take their oil off their hands. It is actually the first time in the history of oil markets this happened. And it wasn't just because people stopped driving. Hydrocarbons are all the stuff. They make all the stuff besides the fuel. Cosmetics, medicine, lubricant, everything in machines to make them run. There are many uses for a 42-gallon barrel of crude oil. 40% will go to gasoline. The rest of the barrel will go toward diesel, jet fuel, plastics, chemicals, asphalt, even your lotions and polyester t-shirts. As factories closed and supply chains collapsed, the shutdown hit demand for every use of petroleum. They churn these, you know, 100 million barrels of oil a day into all of this 100 million barrels a day of product. And the reality is there was no place to put a lot of that product. And so that the market works. That sent the signal up the chain. We don't need to produce as much. And as soon as you don't need to produce as much and there's not as much demand, the price plummets and falls. But things look very different at the end of 2021. Oil and natural gas prices are now at multi-year highs. When we come out of these forced downturns, we tend to rebound. They call them Vs. You know, you come out of this V curve and you, you come right back up. And as world leaders gathered this month for climate talks in Scotland to discuss lowering fossil fuel use, there were calls to increase production of oil to stabilize prices, including from President Joe Biden. The Biden White House is so worried that rising energy prices could choke off the global economic recovery that it is urging OPEC and its allies to open the spigot so prices can fall. All of this is forcing us to grapple with a very uncomfortable reality. Despite strong technology leaps in batteries, electric cars, and automobile efficiency, we are still as dependent on oil as ever. And so I don't think people really understand that when you poke out different products that we use that come out of the barrel, like, say, gasoline, it still doesn't affect the entire barrel. And I don't think historically we've ever witnessed some sort of peak moment that changes our habits wholesale that will have gotten us off oil. This is The Carbon Copy, a show about the changing planet one story at a time. I'm Stephen Lacey. Some thought the pandemic would be a moment of peak demand for oil, but global consumption is back to pre-COVID levels and will likely surge further. This week, why oil is complicating global climate talks and how we can actually address the problem in permanent ways. Faced with the surge of distributed energy resources, electric cars, and grid constraints, utilities are ramping up dynamic pricing, but the results are mixed. If utilities don't implement rates correctly or transparently, it could be a major roadblock for the energy transition and a headache for customers. On June 13th, Latitude Media and GridX will host a frontier forum to examine the imperative of good rate design and the consequences of getting it wrong. Register at the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com events. You have a book that's coming out. I understand that it is... It is caught up in its own supply chain issues. It is. So my book, New Standard Oil, Managing Abundant Petroleum in a Warming World, it was due to be released by the end of October before COP. I found out that my book is caught up in all of the other supply chain snafus that are going on around the world. It's hard to know when it will be delivered. I won't say if it will be delivered. 
Deborah Gordon is a senior principal at RMI's Climate Intelligence Program, running the Oil and Gas Solutions Initiative. Trying to realistically look at the sector where it is right now and how we're going to start to dial down emissions from the sector. Deborah's missing books are caught up in the economic disarray caused by the pandemic. People are spending a lot more time at home, and they're buying way more stuff that needs to get shipped from one side of the world to the other. Factory closures from COVID, trucker shortages, distancing measures at distribution centers, they all started causing a backlog in global trade, even as demand for goods far surpassed expectations. And now, ports are clogged up with container ships, prices are climbing for everything. And around the world, energy prices are climbing quickly too. Today, the head of the International Energy Agency warned of a global energy crunch that could slow the economic recovery from the pandemic. The root causes, demand and high prices. Many of the same forces impacting material goods, worker shortages, higher than expected demand, low storage, are causing the price spike in oil and fossil gas. Fossil gas is also commonly called natural gas. And all that extra stuff we're buying, it requires energy to make. In the US, the price of natural gas has more than doubled. In Europe, it's increased more than fourfold. The price of crude oil has gone from an all-time low of minus $37.63 in April last year to over $80 a barrel today, the highest it's been since 2014. And the pain is universal. At the start of the pandemic, as demand for energy fell at historic rates, there was a glut of oil. And I think a lot like market disruptions from, say, a war or a supply disruption geopolitically, like when we had the oil embargo back in the 1970s, that happened very quickly. And COVID happened very quickly. And the oil market is a very rapid, quickly traded arbitraged market. And if there's not that place to put all those millions of barrels of product, the price will be very quickly affected. The same thing happened with fossil gas. Although oil and gas are used differently and sold in different markets, they come out of the ground together, and their prices often correlate. So as soon as the price demand goes down and the price goes down, then drillers stop drilling. You know, they start doing less, there's less activity there because they're not being paid as much to do that work. Fracking operations closed, and then national oil producers dialed back their production. And it raised questions about whether we'd already hit peak demand for oil, even from within the fossil fuel industry itself. The changing climate and an economy ravaged by COVID-19 has prompted a stark forecast from a major oil producer. BP says the growth of global oil consumption is coming to an end and will peak in the next few years if it hasn't already peaked. But that may have been premature. Clearly, the economy was still using a lot of oil despite COVID, because if you look at the curves, yes, when COVID hit, you could see that there was, you know, a downturn of whatever, 4 million barrels a day or something like that. But I mean, this is out of 100, you know, so we were talking still single digit reduction in oil demand, even amid an historic, you know, event of a pandemic, the likes of, you know, haven't been seen since the Spanish flu. Oil is a global market. So when demand falls in one region, low prices cause demand to pick up elsewhere. So the lower the price is, the more you will see other countries demand oil. So even if we have a reason why we can't, others will pick up the mantle and purchase these products, which is what happens. And then in the spring of 2021, economies opened back up. Drivers hit the roads again, and we also started buying way more stuff. You started off talking about how petroleum is in everything 
we use. How much of the increase in demand is related to just transportation fuels and how much is related to the, all the stuff that we buy that's now sitting in ships backed up in ports and plastics and, and the material world around us? So there are two economics to the barrel of oil, or I will say three economics to the barrel of oil, almost like three cuts in a way. There are the large volume products like gasoline and diesel and, and jet fuels in the middle, but gasoline and diesel, they constitute about 40%, 50% of the barrel. They don't trade at hugely high prices, but they trade in very massive volumes. So that's one cut. There's another cut of the barrel. I guess I would put um, jet fuel and then all of those petrochemical feedstocks. They trade on smaller volumes, but a very high value proposition. And then there's the bottom of the barrel. The bottom of the barrel is asphalt for roads and petroleum coke, which is the solid residue that you wring out of the heaviest oils that's like coal. They traded very low values, but if you don't trade them, you have to throw them away. So those three things don't all move at the same pace. So you're talking about the pandemic and not using gasoline, but we used a lot of diesel because we had a lot of Amazon orders. You know, there are a lot of trucks on the road during the pandemic moving the stuff that we weren't buying at stores. So those things don't move in lockstep. And that's the complicated nature of getting off oil because you have different things that have different prices that are demanded differently. And oil is a composite barrel, but they make these things that are so variable in them. And that's also a variable in terms of climate impact as well. It means a lot of variability in pricing too. Bank of America analysts think oil prices could climb to $120 per barrel next year, driven by steady demand for petroleum across all sectors of the economy and limited production from oil-producing nations in OPEC. That could translate to higher prices for, well, everything. And that's why people are calling this an energy crunch, even an energy crisis. So at this moment, as we're coming out of COVID, hopefully, to have a rise in prices is, you know, a shock. And I think that that's really hard for people. There's also the physical disruption. Supply chains are still broken. You know, you're seeing truckers, there aren't enough truckers in the UK and gas stations not having petrol. So I think it's the double whammy of having, if having the uncertainty of being able to get these products that you need in your daily life and then having a higher price when you can find them. And, you know, that really just, that's very disruptive, I think, for consumers, especially consumers that are already, you know, just feel that this has been a very difficult couple of years. So how much more difficult will it get? And how is the situation complicating global climate talks? And do we actually have solutions for the whole barrel? That's coming right up after the break. Mark your calendars for June 13th at noon Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and GridX will host a live interactive discussion on implementing modern utility rates. Dynamic rates are vital for motivating customers to electrify, adopt DERs, and embrace demand flexibility. Utility rates could make or break the energy transition. So how do we do it right? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, GridX CCO Scott Ingstrom, and economist Ahmad Faruqi for an in-depth discussion on the future of rates on June 13th. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. A lot of people are calling this moment a test for clean energy, and it is, but the test is different in oil than in gas. Fossil gas prices have risen much faster than oil prices. That fuel is mostly used for heating and electricity, and it's more directly competitive with wind and solar. Prices for fossil gas fluctuate wildly based on regional demand. And because Europe and Asia are still heavily dependent on imported gas, prices have increased by more than 400% in those regions. And they're both burning more coal as a result, even with huge investments in renewables. 
Wind and solar are the cheapest resource for electricity nearly everywhere around the world. They beat coal and gas, but they're more diffuse. They're dependent on seasonal variability, and they require much more energy storage to offset gas use when a crisis like this one hits. Still, we mostly know what the solutions are today. Oil is way more complicated. It's a hard one because they're not connected. You know, renewables substitute coal and gas in the electricity sector, but basically as a direct primary energy source, renewables right now have nothing to do with oil. This is a problem. Countries from America to China to Saudi Arabia are setting targets to slash economy-wide emissions over the coming decades. But almost no one has a plan for oil. It's why President Joe Biden can talk boldly about America's plan to decarbonize electricity, but simultaneously call for OPEC countries to increase their oil supply. And I looked at all of these major countries, what they call NDCs, their nationally determined contributions, how they will, how they pledge to reduce their emissions. And oil and gas were barely mentioned. And, you know, you need to see countries, especially countries that produce oil, where which would be the U.S. and Saudi Arabia and Russia and, you know, all of Australia. You know, you need to see these countries. I mean, I should be counting oil and gas mentioned dozens and dozens of times in their NDC. And that would be my hope. These NDCs are being updated now coming out of Paris. They've started in 2020 and they'll continue out of the Glasgow conference. And oil and gas need to be front and center on this. Coal is mentioned, but oil and gas aren't often mentioned. I think that the problem is that if you're an oil and gas producer, then why this is your economic resource. You know, you don't want to dial it down. And if you are an oil and gas consumer, until there's an alternative, you're not going to really dash that demand because you need to run your country. So it has, it still stands on these very strong economic legs. And the problem is we don't have a price. It would be so simple to have a carbon price. You know, that would change the prospect of this to just price this externality into the trade of this product. But we still don't have a carbon price. And that is a failing of 25, 30 years of climate talks. Is that failure to mention oil and gas and these contributions, is that why we see countries like Saudi Arabia and China make these big commitments through 2050 or 2060, but (laughs) have very little detail for the, the decades beforehand because they're afraid of what to do with oil and gas? Yes. So there's this this aspiration or this leapfrog that puts you out to 2050 or 2070 and you don't have to talk about today. And it's hard because it you need aspirations. You need to have a goal. You need to know where what your, where your sights are being set. No one can have a plan without that, but that's necessary but not sufficient. If we don't talk about where oil and gas are today and how to turn that Titanic slowly around today, and for many that's an that solution is an enemy because it seems like or feels like it's perpetuating oil and gas. Instead of saying, we have to boldly face this reality, we're hooked on oil and gas. I mean, they are economically and energy-wise big parts of everything we do globally. And so we need to deal with everything we could do to start to reduce those emissions. I call it the sum of 2% solutions. You know, between now and the day where we're wholly off this stuff, we're going to need to start very carefully crafting the sum of these 2% solutions that add up to something meaningful. 
you know, like a 30% cut or a 50% cut in emissions. But that A takes work and B, unfortunately, is often seen as the enemy of this long-term aspiration. This is where the controversy over solutions emerges. For many climate groups, the primary solution is to cut off supply, stop drilling, stop building pipelines, stop the existing system. These 2% solutions that Deborah is referring to, they rely on the existing system, stopping methane leaks from drilling, harnessing solar power for steam in the refining process, using activated carbon from low-value petroleum to create building materials, creating plastics that are more durable, or using green hydrogen to shift the business of selling hydrocarbons. One of, I think, the single most hopeful options out there, and it's the way that it happens that excites me also, is green hydrogen. The largest demand for hydrogen in the world today is oil refining. So you can actually produce green hydrogen on the backs of a very capitalized, wealthy industry, the oil industry. You can use it within their ranks in the refinery. They demand more of it than anyone else. Stop producing hydrogen by blasting steam at natural gas, very, very dirty, called steam methane reforming, and replace that with green hydrogen, and then have the oil industry start to sell, make more than they need, and sell hydrogen in the marketplace. And now all of a sudden, they're part of the solution. They're not being told to go buy, you know, a solar farm over there. They're actually integrated hydrogen, green hydrogen into their operation. And then if we direct air capture CO2, they can actually be the chemical companies, which they already are. They can be the manufacturers of hydrocarbons a different way. So you've replaced their 20th century hydrocarbon industry with a 21st century climate friendly scrub CO2, green hydrogen. They're still in business, but they're doing business in the 21st century way, not in a 20th century way. So the book title is No Standard Oil, Managing Petroleum in a Warming World. What do you think? Can we properly manage oil, manage petroleum in a warming world? There is no doubt in my mind that this is doable. It's all about will. And I do think the market is working against us. The financial sector is, you know, and, and the markets are working against us. The markets are so short-term oriented. This is a long-term play. We really need to think in very careful ways over the arc of the next, you know, 10 years, the next through 2030, through 2050. Markets aren't helping us because they're all so fast. You know, it's all about the next hour or 24 hours. So I think that by bringing in these solutions, by thinking through the whole supply chain of oil and gas and knowing where in that supply chain the greatest emissions are and what we need to do to reduce them, we will find tremendous emission cuts that will make their mark as we then work to get off oil and gas and reduce its import in the global economy. That's the show this week. You heard from Deborah Gordon, a senior principal at RMI's Climate Intelligence Program. Her new book is called No Standard Oil, Managing Abundant Petroleum in a Warming World. And it'll be available when copies find their way off the stranded shipping container they're stuck in. Yeah, exactly. Waiting for some sort of truck to get gas or get diesel and come my way. The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Dalvin Abouage, and Daniel Waldorf. Sean Marquand mixed the episode and composed our theme. Original music came from Echo Finch and Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you very much to the entire Canary Media team for their partnership. And before we go, make sure to listen to our new companion podcast, 
Catalyst with Shale Khan. Find it at canarymedia.com or any podcast app. And join us here next week. I'm Stephen Lacey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>